Hey, Jeremy here, one of the pastors at The Way Church, and want to welcome you to today's sermon. Our heart for you and our prayer for you is that you're strengthened as you listen, and we always hope that in all the teaching, you would be pointed towards the person of Jesus. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together. Are you doing all right? You glad you showed up for Family Sunday, for Name Tag Sunday? I tried the Name Tag on the felt or whatever fabric it is I'm wearing, and it was gone. And I noticed the same thing happened with you, Chris. Like, it was going down. You've already repaired it, which is so impressive. I also discovered that I do have a shoulder problem. I was trying to do the above the the head stuff, so if there's anyone here that's in the field of physiotherapy or an osteopath or something like that, I need some help. But that is not what I'm up here to talk about. We are in our series in Mark chapter two. And to begin, I wanna ask a question. And the question is this, how are you at asking for help? Like when you try to grab hold of too many groceries and somebody sees you and it's just, it doesn't look as good as you thought it would look when you hook the extra bag and they come to you and they say, can I help you? What's your response? For me, it's no, 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 I'm fine, right? That's my initial response. I've got it, I've got it. How are you at asking for help, and there's lots of reasons why sometimes we struggle to ask for help. I think sometimes we don't wanna inconvenience others. We're just very polite Canadians, don't wanna inconvenience anybody. And maybe it's that we wanna be the kind of person that can handle this stuff on our own, but for whatever reason it might be, I struggle to ask for help. I really do. Like I struggle to say help, or I'm slipping, or I'm falling or I don't have this under control. And thankfully, in moments of greatest need in my life, moments of great pain, great personal failure, great disappointment, I've been held and helped by others. I think as a society, we celebrate the idea of the self-made man or the self-made woman, but that story is never true and it's not helpful. We all, as humans, need help. And the story we read today is about this. 
It's about needing friends to carry you when you cannot walk alone. And it's about needing something from God that could not be achieved without him. So we enter into the narrative in Mark chapter two, verses one through 12, and here's what we see. Jesus enters the town of Capernaum. There's a key word there. There's two key words. Again, he's entered Capernaum. He's come home, and crowds begin to gather. Why do crowds begin to gather? If you've got your Bible, you can just flip really quickly from Mark two to Mark one, and we get to discover that recently, as Jesus had been in Capernaum, he's teaching And he's teaching in such a way that in Mark chapter one it says that people never recognize this new teaching. They haven't heard teaching with such authority. So there's the words that Jesus has been saying in Capernaum. And people begin to talk. Have you heard what this man is teaching? Not just what he's saying, but the authority in which he's saying it. But it goes beyond that. In Mark chapter one, you'll also see that he's casting out demons. And so Jesus enters into the lives of people who are being demonized by spiritual darkness that's sucking life from them. And with his words and authority, he's setting them free from demonic strongholds. And people are noticing the difference in their life as a result of it. And we also see in Mark chapter one that he was healing all kinds of sicknesses and disease. And so can you imagine this? Jesus leaves Capernaum. And while he's gone, people began to tell stories like if your son was healed, and you ran into your friends, you would say, you're not gonna believe what happened. You know how much this has affected my life. And so all of these people begin sharing stories of what Jesus is teaching, what he's doing, and what he's saying. And so crowds begin to gather at this home in Capernaum. And the home is packed. And just to be really clear, it's a small home. The picture isn't thousands of people. As far as we understand, maybe 1,500 people called Capernaum home at the time. But in this small home, it's so packed that these friends, they bring their paralytic, and you just gotta think that they had heard that people were getting healed. Or maybe one of them saw someone else get healed, and they've got this friend who's paralyzed, and they think to themselves, maybe, just maybe, if we can get our friend in front of Jesus, he could heal our friend. And so they bring their friend who cannot carry himself, cannot walk himself, they bring him on a mat, and they get to the house, and it's so full that they can't get into the front. It always makes me wonder about what was going on with these crowds, that they're so insensitive, that they were so focused on just looking at Jesus, they could miss the needs of a man there, which I think is a parable of how we can find ourselves in a church. Different sermon for a different time. Anyways, so he can't get in, and if you can picture like a first century Jewish house in a city like Capernaum, there would likely be like a staircase up the side that goes to a first story roof. And the roof would have been made from beams going one way, smaller pieces of wood going another way, and then like a thatch of like mud and grain and twigs that kind of go on top. And then if they were more wealthy, there'd be tiles on top of that. And so these men climb up the side of the house above the roof, and they begin to dig a hole to lower their friend on a mat before Jesus. And you gotta know, like, sometimes when I think about this story, I think about it happening like really, really fast. But surely this took some time. Like they're all sitting there trying to listen to Jesus teach and there's all this noise and commotion up above and they're looking up and they're wondering what is going on up there and all of a sudden dust and debris begins to fall. It's messy, it's dirty and then this obscure picture of a man being lowered in front of Jesus happens. And what I love is that Jesus embraces this distraction. There's no sign or indication that Jesus is perturbed by this distraction. 
Sometimes as preachers, we're so serious about what we're preaching that like when a cat runs in the back, which happened before to Matt, where's Matt? The first time he ever preached at the way, a cat came in in the service. And so God bless you, man. That's hard to focus when that's happening. And all of a sudden there's this noise and commotion and Jesus seems to embrace the distraction. And he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, which is a curious response because surely Jesus can see what the primary purpose of them coming, bringing the friend was. And then the religious teachers who were there, and you gotta wonder what brought the religious teachers there? Well, they'd heard what Jesus had been teaching and they wanted to see, is, is he getting it right? And they are very offended by what Jesus says. And they say, who does this guy think he is? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, without hearing them, can hear through spiritual discernment what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says, why are you thinking these things? What's easier to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, or get up and take your mat and walk? And he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite ways of describing himself, and we'll see that throughout the book of Mark and throughout the other gospels as well. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he speaks to the man, son, pick up your mat and walk. And we just read it, that he walks out carrying his mat. It's such a powerful picture. And this amazed everybody. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. I wanna look at three things together today. One, I wanna look at what Jesus says. Son, your sins are forgiven. Second, I want to look at how the religious teachers respond to what Jesus says. And then third, I want to spend some time reflecting on the actions of the friends, the words of Jesus, the response of the religious teachers, and the action of the friends. Are you with me? Wonderful. Number one, the words of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at his words. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is surprising and I think with a critical lens, you might even wonder, is Jesus being insensitive or aloof? Like the apparent need is so obvious. This man has such a profound physical need that he's lowered by his friends. And instead of speaking to his physical need, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And surely you can almost hear like the friends above going, psst, Jesus. Like, we're dealing with something different, you know? But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus isn't insensitive. He's the most caring man who ever lived. He knows our needs deeper than anyone else. It's not insensitivity. It's that he's so sensitive that he knows there's a much deeper need. And he's not going to ignore the physical need. He's later going to say, son, pick up your mat. He's healed. So it's not an ignoring of the physical need, but it's a speaking to a deeper need. This is what we learn about Jesus revealed in Scripture. And I wonder, for those here who've been following Jesus for some time, if you've experienced this, Jesus never settles for surface. Can I get a witness? Sometimes we prefer surface. Most of us on Sunday, there's a certain level of depth we're willing to go. Socially, interpersonally. And there's even sometimes where like either an emotion begins to bubble up or a theme or a topic goes and we kind of just go, keep it above a certain water level within ourselves. But Jesus, he's so kind, he's always peeling back the layers, peeling back the layers. And sometimes when he peels back the layers, it hurts. But he cares so much, he always goes deeper. He never settles for shallow. He's like the great ER doctor. And I've watched a ton of Greatest Anatomy, so I know exactly how... <laughs> 
the emergency room goes. Like when somebody's rolled into the emergency room, it, what, what a good doctor will do is assess all of the wounds and go, which are the most life-threatening? Not ignoring the tertiary wounds, but addressing the most life-threatening first. That's what's happening here. Jesus is making a priority statement. He's making a statement. It's as if he says, I see the paralysis of your body, but that's not the most pressing need in your life. There's a deeper need. There's a soul paralysis, if you will. And I want to be careful not to read too much in this story. My imagination goes wild. Like, I just live in these stories. It's so immersive. And I find myself putting myself in the role of these different characters. And, and so I want to be careful. But I wonder if it's appropriate, and I want to do this sensitively, I wonder if it's appropriate to assume that on some level, the desire to be healed became one of the great sort of hopes and longings of this man's life. I don't think that would be wrong to imagine that at some point in his life he found himself going, if I just got healed of this physical paralysis, that's all I would ever need. Everything would be different if. And this is actually a very human thing to do. We all do this in different ways. If you just kind of pay attention to the inner dialogue in our hearts and minds, there's something about the way the human heart and mind and body's wired that we're prone to put like an inordinate amount of hope in things. And so we can find ourselves saying, if I, could, if I only didn't grow up in this family, then dot, dot, dot. Or if I only had this amount of income, dot, dot, dot. If I just get through this particular season, then dot, dot, dot. If I only had this spouse, whatever it might be, whatever the situation. And it's not wrong to have a desire in our heart for any of those things. And it's not wrong to come to God with those desires. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't ignore this man's paralysis. But I feel like one of the hard truths we learn again and again in life is that if we got all of the things we dreamed of, we wouldn't be happy and fulfilled and whole at the deepest parts of who we are. And I wonder if Jesus would say to you and I with our deepest hopes, our deepest longings, the things that we're putting most of our hope in, if he would say, I hear you, I want your joy, but I want you to have a deep, lasting joy that goes way beyond that. I want to deal with your deepest need. Now, what is the deepest need of the human heart? There's many ways to phrase it, but this text phrase it like this. The deepest need of your heart, of my heart, and not just our individual hearts, but for society, is the forgiveness of sins. Do you need to be forgiven of sin? Is that really the deepest need? This text would say yes. The deepest need of the human heart and the deepest need of our society is the forgiveness of sins. Because the fundamental need of the human heart, the fundamental need of human society is to be plugged in to the life source of the living God. We were made to be tethered in a deeply connected way with the maker of all things. That is what we were made for. And this is the fundamental truth. And sin undealt with separates us from God. It breaks that profound and needed connection because sin is not just the mistakes or just the wrong we do. It's deeper. At its deeper, deepest level, sin is the human posture of making our way in this life without God. It's the human proclivity to reject God and reject his ways. I don't need God. 
That's the heart of sin. I can do it without him. And this is how this Bible starts. This is the first pages of scripture. We see God makes his people good, a beautiful world, peace, shalom, no shame, no guilt, no cancer. And we see man and woman in harmony with one another, in harmony with the earth, in harmony with themselves, and in harmony with God. And then when sin enters the stage, all of that harmony is broken. And here we find ourselves in the tension of that brokenness today. And at the heart of the temptation and sin of Adam and Eve was a desire to say, I don't trust God. I will find my way in this life on my own terms. It's a rejection of God. And it's not just their story. It's my story. And it's your story. And here in the story said in Capernaum, we meet the only one who can heal us from the fractures caused by sin. You know, when you hear somebody on the side of the road, the other day I was walking and I heard somebody with like a, I don't know where they get these speaker systems, but they bring a portable speaker system and they're saying, repent, you're a sinner, repent. And that can be pretty jarring to hear. My instinct is to say, Who, you don't know me? Why are you so mad, <laughs> you know? Um, but we need to hear the voice of Jesus every day say, I'll speak for myself, I need every day to be reminded that Jesus speaks over me, Jason, your sins are forgiven. I've settled your debt. You're in right relationship with me. This isn't like a once and for all thing we hear. I think we hear it and believe it and it changes the trajectory of our whole lives. But there is a reconnecting with that truth every single day. Because so often we can feel so weighed down, so plagued with shame, things from the past, things from the present. And I can find myself so self-condemned, so in that place and the problem with that condemnation is it just puts you deeper and deeper into cycles of coping and sin. But when we hear the voice of our Heavenly Father say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, it can lift us from the shame that pulls us down in the cycle and can meet that love and transforming grace. See, hearing that your sins are forgiven is better news than hearing you're fine just the way you are. It's much better news. It's such good news. See, for some reason, the way we've sort of wired our language and culture, I can't quite get to the bottom of it. We find it so hard to hear, son, your sins are forgiven, or daughter, your sins. Like, that seems like condemning. But like, you're fine just the way you are isn't good news at all. Like, see, sometimes we think we shouldn't talk about sin because it creates shame. But what we need is the forgiveness of sins that heals us from shame. Like, there is an unhealthy shame that sometimes Christians can wield and it's wrong and we should repent of this. But the announcement of the forgiveness of sins is what heals us of shame. And that doesn't happen if we keep saying to ourselves or others, you're all good. And listen, the instinct to affirm somebody as, as beautiful, even just we wanna say things like you're perfect, there's something healthy about that instinct. Because like, if you begin in the Christian story, it begins with a good God making men and women in his image, which means they're infinitely valuable, infinitely precious. So that instinct, when you see someone, even in their most broken state, that says that you're loved, you're worthy of love, you're precious, you're valuable, that instinct is right and good. 
But the next sentence is not, and everything going on in your life is fine just the way it is. That's not good news. Let me explain. Like, if my son Hudson, who was up here dancing with me, if I catch him lying, and I say to him, I love you, son, which is true, and it's all good, no worries, not only am I not a good father in that moment, because it'd be much better for the father to say, I love you, dude. Nothing about what you've done have changed that. Do you see it in my eyes? My affection for you is unwavering. My commitment with you is disconnected from your actions. But Hudson, when you lie, it hurts relationships. And it could become a bad pattern in your life. And so a good father would speak it out. But it's not just about forming and shaping him. Think about this. One day later, if he finds himself self-condemned, by his sin, by his lying. And he looks back and says, my dad loved me, and he kept saying, it's all good, it's all good, but I know that it's not all good. Do you see what I mean? Like at some point, it begins to raise a question about the love. Was the love connected to me being all good? See, we must discover the love of God that meets us when it's not all good when we don't deserve to be loved, lest we think that his love is connected to me just getting by. I'm a good enough person. That's not good news. Because what happens when you look in the mirror or you face your selfishness, not a mistake, not something that happened because of hurt done towards you, but you face your own selfishness, your own proclivity towards like a self-centered way of living. And in that moment, condemnation and guilt and shame rushes in and it sinks you. And so you turn to all kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms coping mechanisms, what's powerful and healing in that moment is for Jesus to say, I see your sin, and I'm not threatened or intimidated by it. I'm not put off by you. I've dealt with it. I have righteousness for you. Come to me. I see you, and I still love you. That's unconditional love. That's love that is a balm that heals our soul. And so when we hear, son, your sins are forgiven, whatever part of us has been culturally trained to go, ugh, ugh, something about that sounds wrong. No, it's beautiful. It's good news that we need to hear every single day. Our heavenly Father saying, I forgive you. Come close to me. Draw near to me. I don't reject you. I died for you. I want you to have full life. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then in great love, demonstrating his authority to forgive sins, he heals him and says, you know, get up off your mat. And that word authority is very important. Like who has authority to forgive your sins? Who has the authority to forgive my sins? Do I have authority? Do you? And the bold, exclusive claim of Christianity is that the only one who has authority to forgive sins is Jesus Christ. So to put your trust in Jesus, or to put your faith in him, to become a Christian, and forgive the betting analogy, but it is betting on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's saying I'm not placing my bet or my faith on myself or my good works or the family I'm in, or the church I'm part of, but I'm putting my full weight on Jesus. And this man walks out that day, mat in hand, believing one of two things, that what Jesus said was true, and he had authority to say it, or it's not true, and he has to go back to his old way of living. And for us to carry our mat out into the world every day is to bet and believe deeply into Jesus that he has the authority and willingness 
to forgive sins. Okay, the words of Jesus. Second, the response of the religious teachers. They're really worked up over this. They're like, who does this fellow think that he is? Why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's happening here? Let's unpack this word blasphemy. Blasphemy is about insulting God. It's a lack of reverence and even contempt for God. And in the first century Jewish culture, this is a serious thing. And uh, first century Jewish teachers identified three levels of blasphemy. The first level is if somebody spoke evil about God's law. Okay, so this is bad. Like if you speak evil about God's law, blasphemy. But that's like the most surface level. One level deeper, the second level, is if someone spoke evil of God directly. So you can imagine that. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 24, we read that that kind of blasphemy is a crime punishable by death in their culture. But lastly, the most serious form of blasphemy was if a human being claimed, you gotta hear this, claimed to have divine authority and equality with God. And do you hear how Jesus is doing that? Like for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven, he is putting himself in the seat of God. And that's the deepest kind of blasphemy. And so they react. And this begins to set a pattern that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark of religious teachers and leaders being threatened by the message and activity of Jesus. Up until this point, everyone's loving this stuff. Like people are getting healed, interesting teaching. But here we see, Mark chapter two, how threatening the teaching of Jesus is to a whole way of being. But the offense to the religious teachers goes even deeper. See if we can kind of just wade beneath the surface a little bit more. See, for them, what Jesus is saying is undermining their whole religious system. Like, where are Jewish men and women meant to go for the forgiveness of sins? Where does that act of sacrifice and priestly atoning for sins take place? The temple. And so much of the religious life revolves around the temple. The temple was the place where the presence of God was understood to dwell. And the temple was seen as like, it's a beautiful picture, this intersecting point on planet Earth between God and his kingdom and man and woman and the kingdoms of this world. So the temple is seen as this beautiful connecting place, the presence of God and the interaction of the heavenlies and this world. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to go to the temple. That's scandalous. You don't have to go there. You can come to me instead. See, the forgiveness of sins involved taking a sacrifice to the priest at the temple. And the priest would bring your sacrifice before God, pray certain prayers in a certain way, and this would bring about the atonement for sin. This is how forgiveness of sin worked. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to go to the temple with your sacrifices anymore. Don't put your trust in that system. Put your trust in me instead. And it's like wild, like Jesus is saying, you don't need those priests in the same way anymore. I'm the high priest. You don't need a priest to forgive you. I'm the high priest. He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm the place where God and man meet in the most profound way. And he's saying, I am the sufficient and final sacrifice. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus will go to the cross and we'll see the cost of the forgiveness of sins. And we're a lot of weeks and months away from chapter 15 right now. We're in Mark chapter two. 
But here we see the shadow of the cross already showing up in the second page of the book of Mark for the men who brought their friends and the man who was healed. They would not have known, but Jesus would have known the great cost that he was prepared to take upon himself so that he could speak to this young man, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. It's the right question. Third idea I want us to look at together, the actions of the friends. I just am so gripped by the scene. Like the words bring about a picture in our imagination. I want you just to let the picture unfold. These friends so disparate, so passionate to see their friend encounter Jesus, they climb up on this roof, that they, they rip a hole, and Jesus even says, like, because of seeing their faith, he healed them. Like, it's just this really powerful picture of, like, friends busting down walls for a friend. And I think I want implications, maybe implications, maybe for our community, of what this posture of these friends could do is like a prophetic image, almost like a prophetic image for us. First, I think this is a prophetic picture of Christian community. Like Christianity is not a solo sport. There can be a framing of the Christian life that places everything in the context of my personal relationship with Jesus. And it implies that the beginning and the end of my Christian faith ultimately can be lived out with just me and God. But when Jesus said to his first followers, come and follow me, from the very beginning, they were joining a community of followers. It's always been meant to be lived out in the context of community. And here we see a picture of the reality that we cannot follow Jesus alone. And I think this picture of these friends carrying their friend, like, is so powerful. Because like some weeks, I need people to carry me to Jesus. Do you? Like, let's just think about church, for example. Like, some Sundays, you show up and you don't have faith to sing the songs. Your mouth might be moving, but in your heart, it's not alive. And you might not be believing deeply into the Word of God because life just seems to scream a whole different set of messages. And you don't feel like praying, but you come into this environment anyways and you hear the faith of others singing, and you see others responding, and it carries you to Jesus. That's what we're doing here. It's not a bunch of people having to pretend like, ah, I don't need help. My faith is just fine. No, we are a people who at times need to be carried to Jesus. And this has to go beyond Sundays even beyond small groups, because those places, they're just not quite the place where you can be so vulnerable and, and honest. Like, we need deep, vulnerable, honest Christian relationships with brothers and sisters where you can say, I'm slipping. I'm compromising. My faith is wavering. And to know that it's okay to say that. And that we're your friends, they won't condemn you or judge you, but they'll carry you to Jesus. We can't be casual about this. We can't do it alone. We must organize our lives in such a way that there's room for those kinds of friendships to be carried 
to Jesus. Second picture I, I think we see from this image of the friends bringing their friend on this mat. I think it's a picture for evangelism and intercession. Like the cry of these friends is we must get our friend to Jesus. And I love that. And that's the heart of a follower of Jesus who wants to see their friends know the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. And we live in a moment where the mention of the word evangelism can make some uneasy, and I get it. I get that there's been unhealthy expressions and even unhealthy intentions behind what's often labeled evangelism. But what is evangelism in its purest form? This is what it is. Jesus has changed my life. He's like water in a desert, and I want others to taste this living water, to know the life and hope and wholeness discovered in him. And something happens inside of us when our passion for others to know Jesus becomes greater than our fear of being misunderstood or embarrassed. And that's what we see in these men. Like they're reckless. They're vandalizing their way in this evangelistic pursuit. Like they're busting down walls to get their friend in front of Jesus because something happened where the desire to see their friends know the love of God became bigger than their fears. And this is a picture of like intercession. Like what is intercession? It's to pray on behalf of. And parents whose kids are here this morning or parents who as you've seen kids or grandparents or aunts and uncles or friends and neighbors as you saw children, maybe there was a name of a child in your heart and you're longing for them to get a touch from God. And the picture of intercession is in prayer, bringing our child, bringing our friend, bringing our granddaughter, our niece or nephew to prayer. Jesus in prayer. Like when I pray for my neighbors who don't know Jesus or for my friends who are no longer following him, I picture this scene. I say, God, I don't know how this works in prayer, but here's my friend, and I put him or her in front of you with the belief that he could do something with a word. It's a picture of intercession. And I think about these friends and how they must have felt, and again, forgive me for over, maybe dramatic, being too dramatic or... But um, years later, okay, they're all around a fire. And surely at some point, one of them goes like, hey, you remember when Jesus was in Capernaum, right? You said we shouldn't go. You said we shouldn't go. You wanted to turn around. But I said, let's go on the roof. And like, remember when Jesus him? Remember when he healed him? We were part of that. Like, sure, like, for sure. How would you ever forget that moment? You would want to retell that story again and again and again. And I think this is the boasts of Christians throughout the ages. Look what Jesus has done, and we got to be part of it. Like, followers of Jesus are joining him in his work. He doesn't need our help. He's doing the heavy lifting. He transforms lives. He'll get the glory. But he includes you and I. And because of that, we get to experience the joy of participating and seeing lives changed in Jesus' name. What a better thing to participate with our lives. Lastly, and this is where we'll end, this picture of these friends ripping a hole in the roof, lowering their friend on a mat, encountering the grace of Jesus, is a picture of messy faith that moves the heart of God. Like Jesus is moved in response to their faith. And what is faith that moves the heart of God? What does it mean to have faith? 
I think one way to explain it is trust in the direction of Jesus. Like, faith that moves the heart of God isn't always certain. It's not always put together. It's often messy. But it's faith in the direction. Like, the picture I have of these guys is they're, like, stumbling their way in faith in the direction of Jesus. There's not a clear plan. It's messy. There's vandalism. But it's faith in the direction of Jesus. Later on in Mark chapter 5, I think, we'll see a series of healings. This woman moving through a crowd so desperate, doesn't even want to face Jesus, but grabs the hem of his garment and is healed. Messy faith. Jairus coming to Jesus saying, like, my son, like, if you could just speak a word, maybe he could be healed. Messy faith. Not certain faith. Faith in the direction of Jesus. They're stumbling their way towards him. It's not a smooth plan. And I just, I just feel like I want you to know, like, God is moved by your messy, stumbling faith in his direction. Like, I think there's a vision of Christianity. I don't know where it came from. It's like, so here's what I have in my mind. It's like blue blazers. It's like hands like this. It's like knowing what to say at the right time. It's like, yep, the world's tough, but God is good, amen? It's confident, it's self-assured, it's never anxious. And I'm just like waiting for the day that I achieve that. And maybe you're waiting for your own version of that. But that is not the picture of faith that moves the heart of God. Again and again, he's moved by a messy, clumsy faith. We're messy, broken people but may we be a people desperately pointing our faith in the direction of Jesus. Like I think on the outside, we may look like the person in the blazer, hands together, but inside, we're just holding on barely to our faith. And every week we do this, this special act of communion. Anyone can receive if they want. If you don't want to receive, you don't need to or feel any pressure, but we, we, we walk down the aisle and I think if we could see our souls, if you could see the souls of Christians in this room, it's like thirsty for water in a desert, stumbling their way from their weak to Jesus. I would love to come to Jesus with only hope in him, but often what I'm bringing is fear and hope in a mess together. I would love to come to Jesus with confidence and clarity in him every day, but mostly I'm coming saying, God, I have no idea what to do, but my eyes are on you. I would love to come to Jesus knowing that I've done what is right before him in every part of my life. But mostly I'm coming to him saying, God, I'm weak, I'm weary, I'm undeserving. My heart and mind is scattered, but here I am, I come to you again. Let us not be afraid of messy faith. It moves the heart of God. And when we go again and again to Jesus and experience him meeting us in our desperate faith, pointed in his direction, we experience his love and his kindness in those moments. We're shaped and formed to trust him more and more and more. And we learn that we need not be ashamed or afraid to bring our messy faith to God. For Jesus sees their messy faith and he does a deeper work in this man's life than they could ever imagined. So, may we be a people of faith, the way church, even if it's messy faith. And may we point all of the hopes of our lives in the direction of Jesus. And may we be a people unafraid to say, 
I need help, of people who carry one another to Jesus. And may we daily encounter the good news that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, that we have a willing and sufficient Savior in him. Amen. Thanks for taking time to listen to today's message. If you're interested in learning more about The Way Church or if you want to get connected in any way, you can go to our website, thewaychurch.ca, and we would love to hear from you. Again, our prayer was that you were strengthened through today's teaching. Trust that you were, and much love from our team to you.